Alexander Downer was leader of the Australian Liberal Party, the longest serving Australian foreign minister from 1996 to 2007, and Australia's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He's now the chairman of the influential British think tank, Policy Exchange. Although Australia doesn't have an aristocracy as such, you're pretty much the closest thing to it, aren't you, Alexander? Your father uh, um, was a um, uh, minister in the Menzies government. Your grandfather was twice uh, prime minister of South Australia. Um, Your family went to Australia in the 19th century. Um, not for the same reasons as other people's um, other people went there, and um, so and then you went to Geelong, um, the great uh, Australian school, and and then Radley College when your father was High Commissioner to London. So would you say that politics is in your blood? Uh, yes, we've always been a very well for a very long time a very political family. Um, so my grandfather, Sir John Downer, as you say, he was the Premier of South Australia, but he was one of the authors of the Australian Constitution, which was probably his greatest contribution to nation building. His brother was um, the Attorney General of South Australia. So my father grew up um, being told by his mother, my father having died, uh, grandfather having died when my father was only five, Um, So my father was told by his mother, my grandmother, of the great value of being in politics. There is no greater way you can serve your community than through its parliament and through its government. Um, And so my father taught me that lesson as well. So um, it wasn't a surprise that I put myself forward for uh, election to parliament um, Uh, when I did. But um, yes, we have been a political family for uh, 130 or so years. And so with your family being so tied up with the creation of Australia and and all the years since, um, tell me about your your view of Australian history, the way in which Who's your favourite Australian historian, for example? And uh, and what's your sort of overarching philosophy of um, of Australian history? Well, it's a very interesting question. So my favourite Australian historian is Geoffrey Blaney, who um, is in his nineties now, but still going, um, still going strong. Is a is a great man. Um, has been a wonderful historian. I suppose there are sort of two aspects to Australian history. One is the extraordinary achievement of the settlers who have turned what was um, a a pretty dry and forbidding sort of country into a modern and very successful economy, one of the, in per capita terms, richest countries in the world. But more than that, the way they have brought in generations of migrants and I mean, this really is an achievement which isn't unique, but is close to unique, ensured that those people coexisted um, and coexisted relatively happily. So there's very little, and there always has been, not none, but very little ethnic tension in Australia. The other aspect of Australian history is Indigenous history, the history of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And this is very much debated now, and there's been a shift in the tone of debate about Australian history from pride in the achievements of the settler communities to 
shame in the way Indigenous people were treated and um, their um, lifestyle was desecrated by um, British and then subsequently other nationalities um, settlement in Australia. So that has become, that actually has come to the forefront of much of the debate about Australian history, which I personally think is a great shame because I think Australia is one of those countries um, which has been a huge success. I often say it if you take the sweep of the last 200 years, I say tongue in cheek, the creation of modern Australia is pretty much Great Britain's greatest achievement. Um, but it certainly, I think, amounts to one of Great Britain's great achievements and, um, and should be thought of uh, in that way. But the tone of the historic debate has changed in recent years. Um, you mentioned Geoffrey Blaney, uh, who, of course, wrote the um, groundbreaking history book, Tyranny of Distance. Um, when you were at Radley, uh, were, you, were you taught well history? Did, did Geelong uh, Grammar School also have good historians uh, teaching you? Was it a, was it a, a passion of yours? Uh, it was. My, my father uh, had a great passion for history. He described himself as an amateur historian. I think somebody like you, one of uh, Great Britain's greatest historians, would uh, agree <laughs> that he was very much an amateur. Um, but uh, he loved history. Um, and uh, he taught me the importance of history from when I was a very little boy. So at school, I had a great interest in history. Um, Basically, British and European history was taught at Radley when I was at school there and at Geelong Grammar in those days, it would be less so now. Um, but British history was, uh, was taught because British and obviously Australian history, because um, the history of Great Britain was fundamental to the way Australia itself had evolved. Um, uh, uh, to the history of modern Australia. So, you know, to understand Australian institutions, to understand Australian politics, to understand the Australian constitution, you had to understand the evolution of those various ideas through British history, because that's where they were inherited from, from Britain. Um, so, yes, I mean, um, British history in A-levels, a I. Um, my special subject was the, the, the English Civil War. So not much use to me as an Australian politician, I suppose, but uh, was inherently interesting. Well, well, that and also, I suppose it was only because of the English Civil War that we have the limited government and uh, the, you know, the primacy of Parliament and so on. So it does, it does have some overlaps, doesn't it, with Australian politics? And politics is, is something that you uh, you became an MP. Um, uh, for Mayo for 24 years from um, 1984 onwards, and then uh, ultimately became leader of the Liberal Party, leader of the opposition, longest serving minister for foreign affairs that Australia's ever had. In Britain, Australian politics is thought of as being particularly brutal. Um, it's a it's a sort of contact sport, um, really, uh, especially in the way that you treat your uh, your prime ministers. Um, is that fair? Because we in Britain have been pretty brutal um, towards our prime ministers in the last year or two. Uh, what do you think? There is a uh, a sort of actual difference between um, between the sort of culture of Australian politics and the culture of British politics. It's actually very similar, which explains why so many 
Australian political consultants end up working for the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in the UK. The culture is very similar. Um, the language is sometimes more extreme um, in Australia, and that's why people think of Australian politics as being uh, as being um, very tough, but very brutal. You know, politicians call each other a disgrace, um, and you know, various expressions like that used. However, um, people in politics in the UK are more polite. The debate is more polite because the society is in a way more polite. I think it's fair to say. But then you've got 68 million people crammed in, in, into an area the size of the state of Victoria when you've got 25 million people spread over 3 million square miles, you can afford to be rude to each other and not see each other again. <laughs> so I think that might be the explanation, but as, as Australian <laughs> politics is only linguistically more brutal than British politics. Um, sure, we have had a bit of a run of prime ministers being thrown out um, since around 2015, but um, so has the UK. And um, before that, I mean, we before, particularly before, before 2007, we had John Howard for nearly 12 years as the Prime Minister. Um, we had Paul Keating not for so long, but uh, Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister for around eight years. And before him, Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister for around eight years, slightly under eight years. So we had quite long periods of Prime Ministership before more recent times when there have been a series of upheavals. Do you think uh, there might be an arg argument for having fixed terms um, like the Americans have, or do you prefer the uh, the British-Australian constitutional setup where you're only Prime Minister for as long as you can command the confidence of the majority in the House of Commons? Well, I think that's um, a huge advantage, by the way. Um, our state our state parliaments have fixed terms. All of our state parliaments, I think all of them now, have four-year fixed terms. So you know when the next election is going to be. But with the federal parliament, that's not the case. It, uh, but the terms are constitutionally limited to three years. Uh, so they're very short terms. Uh, I do think the terms are too short. They should be extended to four years. But that requires constitutional amendment and that's difficult to do. Um, but I think the um, parliamentary system um, is superior to the presidential system and many of your listeners won't agree with that because I think it does give you a great deal more flexibility and it makes the executive substantially more accountable as well. Not to say in presidential systems, the executive isn't accountable because it clearly is to to the parliaments or congresses, whatever name is used. Uh, but nevertheless, because the prime minister and the ministers are actually members of parliament, um, they are on a day-to-day -day basis um, subject to the scrutiny of parliament and debate in parliament, and that's as it should be. Um, and they can also be subject, as we've been talking about, um, the fluidity of um, prime ministers, both in the UK and in Australia, um, they can be subject to being overthrown um, if they're deemed by a sufficient number of members of parliament to be inadequate. Um, and that has happened in Australia, um, as we've been discussing quite often in recent times, 
And maybe that's not such a bad thing because if you're stuck with a prime minister or a president who is completely incompetent or who is, um, to use an Australianism, out to lunch, um, and so, you know, isn't seen to be doing the job, um, well, you're stuck until the next presidential election. Whereas in our case, um, as we can, all, we can all think of examples where a prime minister hasn't been seen to be up to the job, um, they can be disposed of. Um, and I, I, I think for those various reasons, um, there, and there are other reasons beyond that, I think the parliamentary system is an extraordinarily good system. You've got to think of it not in terms of how the system serves the politicians, but how the system serves the public. Um, and certainly in the case of Australia, our parliamentary system has served the public very well. You were the um, longest serving, as I mentioned, Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, from March 1996 until December 2007, in which time, of course, you had enormous um, and very serious issues. You had to broker peace in Papua New Guinea. Uh, you shepherded the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Bans Treaty in the United Nations, sent uh, peacekeepers into East Timor. But I suppose the Iraq War must be considered to have been the most important of all the uh, great international um, global issues of uh, geopolitics during your um, foreign uh, secretaryship. How do you think history will uh, view the um, the whole issue of uh, Iraq, of Saddam, of Western weapons of mass destruction, and so on, in the in the long sweep of history. Well, the context of it all, and I always say this to understand history, you have to understand context. The context of it all was um, the post nine eleven environment, um, and um, I think we we all came to the conclusion we couldn't take too many risks. So we applied the principle that I sometimes think is over, overly applied and the precautionary principle. Um, and we were deeply concerned about the regime of Saddam Hussein for all sorts of uh, reasons, after all, going back to the early 90s and the invasion of Kuwait and all of that. Um, so um, that was the context in which this ongoing issue of the uh, weapons of mass destruction very much came to the fore. Um, so it was a tough decision to decide to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Uh, but to this very day, I think it was the right decision. I think um, in particular, George W. Bush, who, took, who carried the main burden of it, but Tony Blair and in, and John Howard, Australia's contribution wasn't very substantial, but, um, but you know, it was a, con a military contribution to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's regime. Um, I think um, at that level, um, it worked pretty well, but what was handled extremely badly was the follow-up, um, the, um, the chaos that ensued in Iraq was, uh, became a, a huge problem. Um, but, I mean, if you look at it today, um, Iraq has quietened down. Um, Iraq is an unsteady democracy. Iraq isn't a country which is in any way a threat to us or, or a significant problem to, to the Western world. So what is the counter-narrative? What would have happened 
if Saddam Hussein had seen off the United Nations, seen off the United Nations inspectors, um, become a great hero of the radical Arab world, um, would have become a kind of latter-day NASA figure for the success of his anti-Westernism. And what would have been the consequence of that, including in the war against terror, um, which would have been um, possibly, because we don't know, substantially more difficult to deal with. And uh, I mean, the, the, the war on terror, as George W. Bush called it, or the struggle against Islamic extremist terrorism in the Middle East um, might have been long, but it has been successful, um, at least, you know, up until now. It's not a perfect 10, but it's, it's been on the whole pretty successful. Um, I, I'm not sure that that would have happened if it hadn't been for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's regime. So there are all sorts of reasons um, not to do with weapons of mass destruction, why I'm glad to see the back of that regime. Um, so as for the weapons of mass destruction, I would quote Kofi Annan, who came up to me at a um, reception in New York in um, in late 2003, after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's regime, he had been very opposed to the invasion of Iraq. Um, Kofi Annan, the United Nations uh, staff generally had been. And he said to me, uh, of course, this war would never have happened if it hadn't been for the United Nations inspectors. Um, one of whom I knew very well, we both knew very well, called Richard Butler, who was an Australian diplomat. And I said to him, so what do you mean? And he said, well, the inspectors told us that, we're, that there were these weapons of mass destruction. There had been non-compliance with Security Council resolutions. And we all took that on face value. And the intelligence communities developed their uh, hypotheses based on the um, so-called evidence that had been presented by the United Nations weapons inspectors. The organization was called UNSCOM. Um, so I thought it was a very interesting perspective, but we all did believe that Saddam Hussein had not complied with Security Council resolutions, had not disposed of the weapons of mass destruction he was meant to dispose of. And then after the invasion, we found that that hadn't quite been so simple. Another major um uh, extremely important issue when you were foreign um, minister was the Tampa affair in 2001. Um, and of course, Britain's, uh, Britain today is, uh, is faced with a kind of analogous situation with regard to asylum seekers and uh, illegal immigration. What do you think um, Britain could learn from uh, your government's policy with regard to holding um, asylum seekers offshore, for example, which of course is something that our Home Secretary Suella Braverman is trying to do with uh, Rwanda. Um, are, are there lessons for um, for Britain in the way that your government uh, successfully dealt with that issue? I think there are. In that you, in that you, you stopped the boats. You know, Rishi Sunak is, uh, has, has made this an absolutely essential, central message for his uh, re-election, stop the boats. And you, your government actually did stop the boats. So tell us how you did it. Um, so at its heart, immigration is a good thing. It's part of the dynamism of a country that you bring in migrants and some of your people will migrate as well. 
um, uh, and, and it's to be encouraged. But the public understandably expect the government to decide who comes to the country and the circumstances in which they come. And we certainly found in Australia, for as long as the public believed the government had the immigration program under control, um, they would be supportive of it. And that is important um, to the whole issue of social harmony. Social harmony um, does depend, particularly in a country like Australia, where somewhere, somewhere close to 30% of the population was born of overseas, was born out of the country. Um, social harmony um, depends on acceptance of migrants and migrants will be accepted if they're seen to have come to the country legitimately. But you see, the problem is, if a, if a percentage of migra migrants are coming by paying people smugglers, are going coming in through the back door, are not following due process and due procedures, um, then the whole immigration system will start to break down. So what we did um, was we basically made a decision um, starting with the, the case of the Tampa, which was a Norwegian container ship that picked up some asylum seekers on a boat between Indonesia and Australia. We said, um, if you try to get to Australia that way, and there are plenty of legitimate routes to come to Australia, but if you try to come that way, you'll never be allowed to settle in Australia. And um, I set up an offshore processing agreement with... Um, the small island state in uh, the South Pacific called Nauru. Um, and we transferred the Tampa people to Nauru and anybody else who tried to come that way were just transferred to Nauru. Um, I have to tell you, it was incredibly effective because people are not paying, um, asylum seekers are not paying people smugglers in order to go to Nauru. They want to go to Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide to live. Um, so, um, sort of fast forward to the UK today, people are paying people smugglers to make that dangerous and illegal journey across the English Channel. Um, and if the, if the British government can make it clear that no one who comes to the UK that way will ever be able to settle in the UK, and, in, and they can either, they have a choice, they can either not pay a people smuggler and stay in France, or they can pay a people smuggler and they'll end up in Rwanda. Um, and that, that is a choice that the asylum seekers can make. Um, so they do have a choice. Um, but um, in the end, that will stop the trade dead in its tracks, as it did in the case of Australia. I mean, almost no one tries to come to Australia that way anymore because it's never going to succeed. Um, so I think there is a real lesson. There are some differences. There are particularly some legal differences because Australia is not part of the European Convention on Human Rights and not subject to decisions by the European Court uh, in Strasbourg. But nevertheless, the, um, the, the similarities are there. Um, and Australia's immigration programme has continued to be popular. And those who can't migrate to Australia, those who come to Australia, they all have visas. We resettle refugees. We set, resettle around 20,000 refugees a year through the United Nations. Um, and other than that, um, migrants come either as family reunion migrants um, or as um, 
people who come to work in Australia. Um, uh, uh, and it works very well. The Home Office expects about 60,000 um, illegal immigrants to come over the channel in these uh, small boats this year. Um, on, on some days uh, coming up this summer, they're expecting a thousand people a day. And uh, Suella Braverman, the uh, Home Secretary, has described this as an invasion, and she's been attacked very um, aggressively on the left and uh, amongst human rights lawyers for using this word invasion. Um, first of all, obviously, what do you think about that? And let me just uh, say that as an historian, this uh, interested me, and I and I looked it up. And in the three successful invasions of Britain over the last two thousand years, um, Julius Caesar came over in fifty five BC with between seven thousand and, and twelve thousand men. The William the Conqueror in ten sixty six with between seven and uh, ten thousand, and then William of Orange, of course, in sixteen eighty eight with about forty thousand. If you add them all together, the three successful invasions of Britain was actually the same number uh, as we're expecting uh, coming over in one year. Now, clearly, they're not trying to overthrow the government and uh, install them, install themselves as um, uh, as the new government. But nonetheless, uh, don't you think the word invasion was a perfectly reasonable one under those circumstances? <laughs> they're very amusing. Figures, of course, the population of the UK was a fraction of what it is today. It certainly um, was, and I'm absolutely. sure Napoleon and Hitler assembled a much bigger force than that in their failed. But they were they were unsuccessful. They weren't successful, <laughs> and uh, the Sp um, Philip II um, would have had a fair few sailors on board and soldiers on board his ships as well. Though, um, though, um, <laughs> the. Look, it, it, it is true. These people um, in very substantial numbers are planning to come to the country. It is also true um, that for long as the notion of national sovereignty continues to prevail, um, a country should be entitled to decide who comes to their country and who doesn't. And if significant numbers of people come to the country illegally and remain, and the government uh, is un unable to deport them, um, then this has the potential over time to change very substantially the character of the country. And there's going to be huge public resistance to that. So it has some of the features, of course, not a military invasion, but it has some of the features of an invasion. And, you know, under international law, you're not supposed to um, settle territory in other countries without their approval. Um, and uh, imagine, I've often said this to people in the UK, if 100,000 people in Liverpool decided to up sticks and go and live in the suburbs of Nairobi, how would the Kenyans feel about that? Um, and there, you know, obviously would be huge resistance to that. And you, you can understand that. So um, I think- yeah, Also, of course, the part of um, the reason that a lot of people voted for Brexit was because they believed that they were going to re-establish control over Britain's borders, which very clearly is is not the case now. Yes, I mean, it, and it, it goes back to all, all that I was saying, that people um, voted for Brexit not because they were against migrants. I mean, I don't think I've ever come across a country more racially tolerant than the UK. I don't know of a country in the world that's more racially tolerant than the UK. It's one of its huge strengths. It's not that people are against migrants. 
It's that they're against uncontrolled and unregulated migration. They want to feel that it's controlled. Um, so, you know, the government in the UK government now has to be uh, vigorous in dealing with these uh, people coming across the, um, the channel. Uh, people smugglers shouldn't decide who comes to live in the UK. The British government should. Let's talk about China. When you were foreign minister um, of Australia for all of those years, you had uh, Australia had good relations overall with uh, with China, and um, and that has significantly changed now. Is that uh, because China's changed, or because Australia's changed, or both, or neither? So we had, um, on the whole, good relations. They were very much up and down. There were moments of tension. There were moments when the Chinese government refused to speak to us. Um, you know, that would last for, for months on end. But on the whole, we had a, a pretty constructive relationship with them. I think when I became the foreign minister um, in, 19, in March 1996, China was Australia's sixth largest trading partner. Um, and by the time I finished in uh, November 2007, it was by far... Australia's largest trading partner. Our trade had just exploded with China and Australia ran and still does run, by the way, a very substantial trade surplus with China. So commercially, it was a very, um, a very successful relationship. And politically, um, we subscribed to the notion of coexistence with China. Um, we, they used to complain to me, Chinese leaders would complain to me about our alliance with the United States and saying it was a throwback to the Cold War and it was redundant and we should abandon it. And I used to explain to them that we, Australia, will choose our friends um, and um, the countries with which we have great um, historic ties and ties of culture like the UK and the United States will always be our closest friends. And um, that China's not going to change that. So don't raise it with me anymore. And um, I mean, I think by being frank with them, but not rude to them, um, we, but they're be, being firm in standing up for what we believed in. There were many other issues as well being firm, so they absolutely knew we wouldn't budge. Um, we coexisted quite successfully with them. So what has happened since is that uh, Xi Jinping has become the president of China, has become, of course, a hugely powerful and dominant uh, figure, got carried away, as people throughout history often do, um, with their success. China has been economically hugely successful. Um, the policies of, you know, since the Deng Xiaoping reforms, the policies of the government have been, economically speaking, very successful. Xi Jinping inherited this uh, excellent legacy. Um, and instead of building on it, um, um, overreached. And that it, it, it almost always happens with really successful politicians. They overreach. They just go that one step too far. Um, and he's just become extraordinarily aggressive. Um, their government has become very arrogant. For a while, they ran something called wolf warrior diplomacy uh, by being um, unbelievable, really, to see this as a 
long-serving diplomat myself, um, so rude about the leaders of other countries and so arrogant in their language, um, but also very aggressive in the South China Sea, aggressive towards Hong Kong, um, um, obviously aggressive in, uh, uh, towards the Uyghur people, um, and aggressive on the international stage um, to a worrying degree. Um, so Xi Jinping has effectively isolated China. I mean, his, his best friend is President Putin. His, his closest relationship nowadays is with Russia. I mean, if your best friend is President Putin and your second best friend is Ayatollah Khamenei, um, then, you know, you, you seem to me, it seems to me you're missing something in international diplomacy. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and China, you know, China is going to be very dependent for, for the rest of the history on um, good economic relations with Western countries. I mean, Russia, the relationship with Russia will never be able to replace the relationship with the if you like, the G7 and other countries like Australia. Um, so um, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's been a very foolish policy. I think, um, you know, this is the trouble with dictatorships. Their policies are not debated. There's no debate in China about whether this wolf warrior diplomacy and this arrogant, and over, uh, arrogant overreach by Xi Jinping is a good idea. Um, I do observe, though, um, a lot of people will disagree with this, but I would say on the basis of my experience dealing with China, um, that some people in Beijing have realised that they have gone too far and they have to start toning down their diplomacy and re-engaging more successfully with Western countries. And obviously they're choosing the softer Western countries to do that with. Um, whereas harder countries like um, the UK, Australia, the United States are not getting quite such a good run. But the, the, the Chinese government has used the change of government in Australia in May last year um, as a way of starting to tone down their attacks on Australia. So there are some signs of an improvement in that relationship. By softer um, countries, might you be referring to Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to <laughs> Beijing and the remarks he made afterwards about Taiwan? I mean, do you think that those yeah, do you that... think that those um, essentially um, were appeasing remarks? Yes, I do. I mean, I think this is exactly what the West should not do. Um, I would say with all of my diplomatic experience as a a junior diplomat as a uh, foreign minister, as a senior diplomat in London, as the High Commissioner here, and working for the United Nations, if there's anything I learn, have learned, it's be clear, have a clear and simple position, and stick with it. And um, the West, in its engagement with China, needs to deter China's aggression, um, particularly have a policy of concerted deterrence in relation to Chinese adventurism in Taiwan, um, which could cause a catastrophic war, catastrophic for the global economy and catastrophic for the people directly involved in such a war. So the West needs to have a clear, coordinated, concerted policy of deterrence and also a policy of coexistence with China. Look, we're not going to 
um, change the regime in China. Um, we're not going to run uh, a policy of containment of China as we did with the Soviet Union. Uh, but China needs to understand that we are united and strong in terms of security, international security issues, and we won't waver. So when Emmanuel Macron goes off to Beijing and makes the kind of, well, he made the comments on a plane coming back, I think, from Beijing, but there's sort of soft comments about Taiwan, um, it shows a West divided and a West weak. Does it? Um, and, you know, you're giving the impression they're not going to choose between the United States and, and China, really. I mean, you think the French public would feel comfortable with that? I mean, that, that, that I'd have to say is a thoughtless thing to say. Of course, the French people would choose the United States, uh, um, the greatest of all liberal, at least in numerically speaking, uh, of all liberal democratic countries, uh, the leader of the Western world, um, over doing deals with Xi Jinping in China. Of course they would. And so, you know, this is, um, it, looks, it looks like, the French president is just trying to sort of ingratiate himself for commercial reasons to Xi Jinping. And I'm, I think that's just a huge, yeah, huge mistake. Do you think there might also be echoes of bitterness over the AUKUS Act and the effect that it had on, uh, on France? I doubt that his comments were motivated by that. But um, talking of AUKUS, the AUKUS agreement, it does, seeing um, President Macron's remarks reminded me that we're better off doing a deal on technology for um, a new generation of submarines with the UK and the US than we would be with France, because Macron has made France look a little bit fickle. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we can't afford, I mean, we're going to spend uh, hundreds of billions, it'll be hundreds of billions of dollars um, on building a new generation of submarines, we can't afford to, to be collaborating with a country that um, has an uncertain security policy on the issue that's the most important single issue in the world today, geopolitical issue in the world today, and that is the relationship between the West and China, and particularly the United States and China. You've spoken just now about historic ties and ties of culture. Obviously, um, a major one is the is the monarchy. You've been a supporter of Australians for a constitutional monarchy. We're two weeks away from the uh, coronation, um, and yet your uh, successor in your office of um, High Commissioner, Australian High Commissioner here in London, has said that Australia is soon going to become a a republic. Um, do you think that uh, Australia is on a sort of inevitable slide towards becoming a republic, or do you think that he was um, uh, speaking intemperately. Well, he was just saying uh, what he he believes, I suppose, to be fair. But um, do I think it's um, it, it's going to happen? Um, I don't know through the rest of eternity what will happen, um, but I do know that at the moment there is no mood for it in Australia at all. I think the king has got off to a very good start. I mean, people were obviously very sad and distressed when the Queen died, although she was old, so people obviously understood that was imminent. But when it happened, it was, um, it was a sad time for Australia, not just the UK. Um, 
but um, the King has got off to an excellent start, uh, including with Australians. And I think, um, look, they, they feel comfortable enough with the situation without having a constitutional upheaval. I mean, why in a country, why in a country which runs pretty well, has very high standards of living, low unemployment, um, uh, has uh, great security partners, um, a constructive foreign policy, why would you want to have a huge constitutional upheaval by taking the cornerstone of the, con the constitution out of the constitution and replacing it with some sort of elected or appointed president? I mean, what sort of president? Who would be the president? What kind of person would be the president? Honestly, do we really have to go in, uh, down that path when the governor general is the de facto head of state in Australia. The king only has in the Australian constitution um, one power, and that is the appointment of the governor general. He has no other power at all in the Australian constitution. All of the reserve powers are with the governor general, not with the, with the king. Um, so, you know, I mean, I can't just, I just can't see the point of it. it, it, it the system works perfectly well at the moment. It's not one of the problems Australia has. Um, and the argument for getting rid of the king is, um, well, we don't want to be sort of identified as being to too close to the UK. Whereas not surprisingly, my view is that the UK may have its problems, but it's not a bad thing. It's after all the country which uh, intellectually and, um, and um, emotionally, I think Australians are the closest to in the whole world. And of course, Australia plays a tremendously important part in the Commonwealth um, alongside uh, Britain. Many of our American uh, listeners, I don't think very much, know very much or are terribly um, uh, interested in the uh, Commonwealth. But for you, it's been a, a you're, you're a passionate believer and supporter of the Commonwealth, aren't you? Say a few words about uh, about that. What it, uh, you know, why why an American listener to this uh, podcast should. Um, should take an interest in the uh, in the Commonwealth. Well, I do think it's a bit about history. Um, so, for historic reasons, not all, but just about all of the Commonwealth countries, they were once part of the British Empire. And whatever you think of the British Empire, um, um, they were part of the British Empire, and therefore they have some common characteristics. Not least the same legal system. They have the common law legal system. They don't all, but they mainly have parliamentary political systems. Um, they have um, many of the same, if you like, human rights, they don't all, but many of the same human rights values as each other. Um, and they, the elites anyway, in these countries, um, all speak English. So um, they have a natural um, uh, collaboration um, so why not use the historic links that they have, um, not to try to revive the um, British Empire, which nobody on this earth wants to do, um, but um, in order to um, enhance the networks. I mean, that the networks exist, but networks between different professions, networks between different occupations, networks between sporting people through the Commonwealth Games, um, so it is a wonderful 
uh, vehicle for expanding networks. If you think of a country like Australia, I mean, what does Australia really have in common with um, Jamaica or St Kitts and Nevis? Well, the answer to that is, or quite apart from them playing cricket, and in Australia we play cricket, that's, of course, a legacy of the, of the British Empire. Um, but um, um, it's that we're both members of the Commonwealth. So in certain circumstances, we meet together. Um, so, I mean, that is, that is a good thing. We, we get to know each other. We get to know each other's perspectives. We get to know each other's priorities. And that must be for a better world. So um, I think in the UK, as in Australia, within our foreign ministries, the FCDO in the UK, DFAT in Australia, it's been very hard to convince people to put much energy into the Commonwealth. Um, but I think that that network based on history, but that network um, is, is very valuable and, and, and more could be done with it. I'm just about to launch at King's College London um, a scholarship scheme for um, civil servants in Commonwealth countries. Um, uh, to upgrade the skills of civil servants in those Commonwealth countries. It's the sort of uh, the sort of useful work we can do through Commonwealth networks. So um, uh, for Americans, well, um, you know, I suppose it, it, it's the nature of how they achieved independence in the first place. They, you know, heroically broke away from the British Empire and, and called George III um, a tyrant and... Uh, and went on their own merry way. So um, through, through history, they, they, they were, of course, uh, much opposed to the British Empire and all of its manifestations, including at the end of the Second World War. Um, so I can't see that they would have much time for the Commonwealth. But for countries which are within the Commonwealth, it is a fantastic network, and um, I think it should be encouraged. You and I both sit on the board of um, the Think Tank Policy Exchange, of which you're chairman. Um, tell us a bit about uh, the role that you think think tanks, obviously in England, they're, they're much smaller um, than they are in the United States, um, but uh, they still do have influence, don't they, and, and, and value. Uh, there's, a, there's a worth to think tanks in uh, British politics, isn't there? I think uh, more than a worth, I think they are um, absolutely essential in um, generating and sometimes leading public debate about, um, about issues. So, you know, whatever the issue may be, if it's in, in foreign policy or health policy or education policy, whatever it is, um, where is the debate going to come from outside of the immediate political class, members of parliament, of course, or members of Congress in the United States, presidential candidates and so on. But where are they going to get their ideas from if they don't just get them from pollsters? Um, who is going to drive the agenda? Um, and every successful society is a society which generates debate um, and um, and consideration of alternatives, debate about alternatives. Maybe in the end those alternatives are rejected, and many are, but um, I don't doubt for a minute um, that one of the great drivers of public debate in the United States is the think tanks. Um, and to some extent that's true in the UK. 
um, and it's less true, I think, but it still has has some validity as an argument in Australia as well. But overall, um, I, I think they're hugely important. I mean, without think tanks, where are the ideas going to come from? So your answer to that rhetorical question might be universities. So you see the thing about, and I'm speaking to you from a university at the moment, thing about universities is they're not strong on diversity. By that, I mean intellectual diversity. Um, and uh, I found in my nearly 12 years as the Foreign Minister of Australia, I got um, surprisingly few ideas, surprisingly little guidance coming out of the Australian university system or any other universities. But I, get, I did get ideas from think tanks um, and sometimes from um, corporates and sort of other inspired individuals. Um, but I think the universities have turned out to be a very disappointing um, uh, source of ideas. Uh, I know that's quite a controversial point of view. Working um, not with me, it isn't. <laughs> um, and, and and you put that down. You put that down to 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 wokery and uh, the general left wing um, uh, drift of of universities across the Western world. There's huge pressure, you know, in English speaking universities. Anyway, there is huge pressure on uh, on uh, for conformity. I mean, it's an an, an extraordinary thing, um, but. Um, it comes not just from the academic staff, by the way, but from the uh, what are called the professional services staff, the administrative staff in universities. Um, the the pressure for conformity is it's quite intense, and people who don't conform, um, and you know, particularly in the arts and social sciences, um, often feel, um, and they tell me they do. Uh, feel quite isolated. They find it um, a very, very challenging position to be, and not everybody wants to go uh, to become a political warrior in their lives. I can understand that. A lot of people who go to work in universities want a quieter life, and then somebody like me who went into politics. So you expect um, there to be verbal war in politics, and so there should be, but in universities. Um, you, you um, imagine a quieter life than in politics, but nevertheless, you expect debate. Um, and conformity is the order of the day in universities, not diversity. What history book are you reading at the moment or, or biography? So I'm just coming to the end of, um, dare I mention this to you, because it's a very politically incorrect book, Nigel Bigger's book on colonialism. Um, which I've found, um, I've, I've found uh, about the British Empire, which I have found, uh, uh, I found it a very interesting book, really. It's, um, it's, it's got a lot of critics. It's, it's been pretty much panned. It's partly that. No, that no, no, hang on, hang on. Sorry, sorry, Alexander. No, no, no. I had, uh, I had dinner with Nigel last night. It's been panned on the left. It's been attacked in the, uh, in the Guardian New Statesman Observer and so on. But overall, um, I don't think that's fair. I think it's been considered uh, to be an extremely scholarly and objective work. I think it is. And that's uh, really surprised me from what I had heard about it. So, you know, as a, a, a whatever I am, a great, 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 great grandchild of the British Empire. Um, and since there is debate about the British, what's a debate? I mean, in universities, there, 
it's just uh, seen as the greatest of all stains on on Great Britain that it once had an empire. Um, not that I share that view, by the way. Um, I thought I'd read this book. Um, and what I actually think about it is, I don't agree with all of it, um, but what I think it is, is quite a balanced book. I mean, it does talk about some of the dire events that occurred um, in the British Empire. Um, it, of course it does. Um, and, and it points to mistakes that people made, but it also points to public policy and what the policy of the British government was in the colonial office, particularly through the 19th and first half of the 20th centuries, um, which is quite for, for anybody who's interested in the British, uh, British Empire would be quite a revelation how liberal British governments were. Um, the demand that indigenous people, native people, um, be treated with respect, be treated as human beings, as part of the human race. Um, they weren't, I mean, some individuals in the British Empire would have been deeply racist, but the policies of the government, not so much, um, particularly in the context of the time. I, so I found it a very, a very interesting book. And I told you, you know, I regard the creation of modern Australia as Britain's greatest achievement in the last 200 years, 200 or so years, um, you might put down, you might think the Battle of Britain or something is more important, but I say that, and the creation of modern Australia, it was created by the British Empire. It's, it was very, going back to what you mentioned earlier about, uh, about Wokery, it was fascinating, wasn't it, that uh, that excellent book that you mentioned by Nigel Bigger, um, Colonialism, was actually uh, dumped after he sent it to the publishers, his original publishers, Bloomsbury, and they said how good it was. They then cancelled the book, or at least postponed it with no date that for future publication. And so he took it away uh, from Bloomsbury and went to uh, HarperCollins, who had, sorry, Penguin Random House, I think it was, and uh, they published it instead, and it's been a huge success, which I hope is a slap in the face for Bloomsbury, needless to say. But it was um, it was a, a nerve-wracking moment when a, a publisher can say no to publishing books on, on political grounds, essentially. It, it just shows what a lack of interest there is uh, by the publishers in the intricacies of the British Empire and what actually happened. They just buy a narrative that, of course, become very much a feature of modern times. People just buy a narrative, um, which they've, um, wherever they get the narrative from, I'm tempted to say they just get it from social media, um, but they accept a narrative and they won't consider anything else other than the narrative they've, they've swallowed. This is a real function of an era where um, you know, gone are the gone are the values of the Enlightenment, um, and what's arrived is a kind of emotionalism, um, which drives public policy and a lot of public decision making, and it's very depressing to see. I mean, why wouldn't people be interested in Nigel Bigger's um, views on the British Empire or different views on the British Empire? What, you mean everybody, everything that the British did. Um, throughout hundreds of years of the British Empire was wrong. They, they never did a good thing. Is that, we're meant to believe that. They did nothing good, just nothing. 
I mean, even people in Australia now going around bagging um, the British Empire. Australia, modern Australia wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the British Empire. What are they saying about their own country? That their own country is a catastrophe? It should never have happened? Is that what they think? Is that what some Australians think of Australia? Or Canadians think of Canada? Or for that matter, because America was a creation of the British Empire, the United States was. Um, that that is all a complete disaster as well? Is that what they really think? No, so there should be much more debate about these things. So I've read that book. I've finished it now, I've, and I've read it with I've read it with great interest. I've also been reading a book about this will be too obscure for your listeners um, about an Australian prime minister called William McMahon, who is the prime minister between 1971 and 72. Um, uh, I mean, on the whole, an unsuccessful prime minister. Written by the books written by an Australian writer called Patrick Mullins. It's just um, a, a bit obscure for you, I suppose, but quite an interesting <laughs> history. <laughs> um, there's nothing too obscure for my listeners, I can assure you. We are we are fantastically uh, interested in the arcane. Um, what's your favourite what if, your, your counterfactual? Well, as an Australian, I suppose um, I thought about this, um, I think if the French and the Spanish had won the Battle of Trafalgar and they had destroyed the Royal Navy, the power of the Royal Navy would have taken more than the one battle to do that. Um, but if, if the Royal Navy hadn't prevailed, then modern Australia would not have developed as it's developed. Um, and all that we've been discussing, the British Empire, um, such as it was, and of course it did exist then, um, in 1805, but um, the British Empire uh, would have um, would would have largely dissolved. So, I think the way the United States developed, I think the way Canada developed, and certainly I think the way Australia developed. I don't know how it would have been different, but it would have been substantially different. So, um, the fact that so through the Napoleonic Wars, the Royal Navy prevailed was hugely important to the way um, the world developed. Um, and out of Britain, out of the British Empire, um, which was an evolutionary project, evolved a lot of values that we now identify as Western values, Western systems of the law, of law, the rule of law, the um, human rights that we all value. Um, these these are these have evolved um, not exclusively but substantially from from Great Britain, and if the Royal Navy had lost um, the Battle of Trafalgar and maybe so one or two battles before that, like St Vincent and so on, um, who knows what would have happened? But I think the world could have turned out to be a very different place. I think you'd almost certainly um, be speaking French, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I know I you can do a... anyway, because you went off to uh, to Brussels, didn't you, at, uh, at some stage in your life to learn I, French? I, think yeah. I, I would just be a peasant in Portsmouth, where my family originally <laughs> came from. They migrated to Australia in 1838 from Portsmouth. Um, so um, I think I'd still be there. Alexander Downer, you... Uh... You asked earlier, by the way, what kind of a um, person would uh, be should be president of Australia in a uh, republic. I think uh, somebody who was called into 
politics by a sense of duty and noblesse oblige and family uh, traditions and somebody who's obviously thought very deeply about um about uh, world affairs i am therefore going if this terrible day ever did strike and australia became a republic i'm going to lead the downer for president campaign <laughs> um well uh, that's very very kind of you <laughs> thank you very much indeed for coming on secrets of statecraft it's a great pleasure andrew it's an honor to be on such a great podcast <laughs> My thanks to Alexander Downer. Coming up on the next Secrets of Statecraft is George Robertson, who was Secretary General of NATO during 9-11. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.